0: Well, you're jumping around in a series that we're doing at Hope, um, all three locations at Hope. It's called Turning the World Right Side Up, and this is focused on the book of Matthew, particularly on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5, and Mark already told you it's on 737 in the Bible, the orange Bibles, if you have those in front of you. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most well-known teachings of Jesus, even outside of... Um, even outside of the Christian church. You'll hear it referred to in movies sometimes, and you'll recognize some of those pieces that you've been hearing about in the last couple weeks, and I think you're finishing up next week with this series as well. The Sermon on the Mount, is start, it starts out with Jesus essentially um, telling his followers, or the people that are listening to him and starting to be intrigued by him, The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' words to them about how they're going to be, how they're going to act, what the truth is about the followers of Jesus. And the reason we're calling this series Turning the World Right Side Up is this, because what Jesus taught was very often the exact opposite of what the world was teaching at the time. In fact, a lot of people refer to the kingdom that Jesus preached about as the upside-down kingdom because it was so radically different than the world at the time, the perspectives at the time, the mindset at the time, the understanding at the time. And the Sermon on the Mount is one of those things. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because it says Jesus went up on a hill. Mountain, I don't know how you define that, but the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Hill where Jesus was teaching... So the beginning of chapter 5 that you already covered starts out with a whole lot of radical pronouncements about how the world is going to be different and how Jesus' followers are different in character. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And the world at the time would say, wait a second, those that hunger and thirst, those that are poor in spirit, that's not not the good. That's kind of the lower part of society. And Jesus is saying, oh, not in the upside-down kingdom. So the first part of chapter 5 talks about how Jesus' people are going to stand out in terms of their character and their relationship with God. A little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5, so before where we're going to talk about today, Jesus talks about how uh, his followers are going to stand out in action and in deeds. So he says, you're going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, how you're going to stand out. A little bit later, verses 17 through 38, talk about how Jesus' followers are going to stand out in their response to the laws of relationships. He talks about divorce and adultery and anger and the taking of oaths. Well, today, verses 38 through 40, at the very end of chapter 5, we're going to talk about Jesus' teaching on how followers are going to stand out when it comes to the world's rules of conflict and retaliation and love. Now, it's important to realize that Jesus' audience at the time, and maybe you've talked about this before in this series, but Jesus' audience at the time uh, were not... Christians, necessarily. A lot of them were people who hadn't decided to follow Jesus yet. But the most important thing to know about the crowd is they were Jews. These weren't people that were Gentiles. In other words, people that weren't Jews first and then became Christians. These were Jews that became Christians. And that's important to realize because the Jewish audience had a teaching and a mindset and a culture that we have to understand. For most of us, that's not your background. I would wager to bet there may be no people of Jewish heritage in this room, Maybe there are. Come and talk to me afterwards. That would be interesting. But um, most of the people listening to Jesus at that time were cultural and traditional and religious Orthodox Jews, and it's important to know. So one thing that's important to realize about that is when we get into chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard it said, Jesus says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You'll hear this pattern all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said... A, but I say B. Now in our minds, in sort of Western culture, we think, well, Jesus is contradicting A and B, right? He's saying, here's how it is, but I'm going to change it to B. It's not true. If you were a Jewish hearer at the time, this is how you would have heard it. You've heard it said A, and I'm going to add and make deeper and make clearer B. So Jesus is not contradicting. When you hear Jesus say You've heard it said, but I say. He's not contradicting. He's adding to the teaching. And that's really a good thing to understand. Paul uses it in the New Testament. Most of the Jewish rabbis at the time used that sort of phrasing. It's sort of a a typical idiom. Like we'd use if we were teaching, um, like the words, you know, for example, or um, uh, case in point, or exhibit A. It was just a phrase that was used. So Jesus was adding and expanding. He wasn't contradicting. In fact, right there in chapter 5, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So what's the law? It's helpful for us to know what he's talking about when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In general, let's go back to that first verse that we're looking at today. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that was a law of Moses. The Jews that we listening to at the time... That had the Jewish scripture would have said, "Aha! Uh-huh, yeah, I recognize that. That's that's a law on the books. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth." Now we hear that and we think, "Whoa! Gouging out people's eyes and eyes and ew, tooth and knocking people's teeth out. That's that's strange." But it really was a law in a way that the law was was explained, and it was pretty advanced at the time. Here's a little bit about Jewish Talmudic law. The Talmud was this, the uh, explanation of the scripture at the time. And so the Jews would have used this law to interpret what they believed God wanted out of this law of Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So in Jewish Talmudic law, if you were wrong, if somebody did something nasty to you, you were due compensation in five different categories. Five different categories you could go after that person who did something to you. Five categories, damages, healing, pain, loss of work, and insult. So, for example, John Custis has a camel, okay? And his camel is in his yard and is wandering around and Steph has a well, and, or she's dug a well in her yard, on her property, and John's camel falls into Steph's well. My camel can't swim. And John's camel can't swim. It's a bad situation. So John's camel has fallen into Steph's well. Well, what do you do? Well, John's gonna go after Steph for everything, right? You might think, well, he shouldn't let his camel out. No, actually John could go after Steph for those five different categories. Number one, damages. Well, his camel is injured, and that camel's worth some money and some work, and so he's gonna go after the damages that he can get for his camel falling into stuff's well. Healing. Well, he's gotta figure out how to to, to to heal that maybe he's gotta go to the vet and get the you know, x ray and the MRI and stuff and get the crutches for the camel. So that's healing. He's gotta figure out how to or maybe if the camel I'm sorry, if the camel didn't make it through the well incident, John's gotta buy a new camel, right? Pain. It was really painful to watch your camel suffer, wasn't it, John? It was, it was tremendously bad for him. So he could go after Steph and say, I, have, um, I want X amount for the pain that it caused to watch my camel suffer like this. Loss of work, because for crying out loud, he had to take a day off work, go get the camel out of the well, and then all these appointments and the, you know, the follow-up and that sort of stuff. That's loss of work. So John's going to go after Steph for loss of work. Well, finally, you were incredibly embarrassed when that camel fell into the well, weren't you? It was insulting. It was shameful that your camel fell into her well. You had to deal with her. She's a woman and you're a Jewish man. I mean, it was crazy. So category number five, insult or shame. Five different categories John could go after stuff if his camel fell into her well. And actually, the camel in the well situation, isn't, it was used very often. Um, your animal would, got into my yard or my garden. That was one of the actual teachings that the rabbis used to explain Talmudic law. See, before the laws of Moses, wild revenge was sort of the name of the game. Um, it wasn't an eye for an eye, it was you know, your firstborn child for an eye. So even though this whole five categories of compensation might seem extreme and really crazy and detailed, um, it, they didn't justify revenge, actually, they bounded it. The Mosaic law, these five categories that seem really detailed to us, actually put definitions on justice and defined people's right to compensation. So it was a huge step forward at the time. So when the Jews were listening to Jesus, they were saying, yep, an eye for an eye. That's, that's good, that's sensible stuff that we're used to. So when Jesus expands on the current law, he isn't saying forget justice, forget an eye for an eye. He's saying something even more radical. He's saying go beyond justice. Go beyond what the specific rules are to show that you are a follower of Jesus and you respond out of love, not just out of the law. He says, Go beyond the law to show that keeping peace is more important than getting your due. And so people are starting to realize wow, Jesus is taking this really strict Jewish law, this Mosaic law that we think is pretty good and strict and clear, and John gets what he needs for his camel. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's all good, but I want you to go more. See, because Jesus knew his audience. He knew that his, 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 the sinful people listening to him, then and now, us all included, Jesus knew his audience, and he knew that the sinful people listening to him are going to seek revenge, and revenge in every single detail possible. And if there weren't laws to boundary them, they'd go all out Jesus knew his sinful audience because he knows that we're always going to want to one-up our opponent. He knows that we're going to get what we can get and then a little bit more. If you think about it, that's how our minds work when nobody's looking. It's part of our human nature. It starts when we're kids, one-upping one another in revenge. In fact, that whenever I think of one-upping and revenge and our nature growing up, I think of my sister and me. Um, so my sister who's older than I am. Her name is Tess. When we were about 14 and 16, we were visiting my grandma. And some of you may have a grandma like this, but every time you go and visit, you get a grocery bag of stuff it could yeah see you not eat like magazines that you're probably not interested in, you know, like a bundle of straws, they got a Burger King and you know, some, you know, an old picture that you drew when you were two, you know, you get the bag of stuff, right? So so my sister and I were at my grandma's house and we got the bag of stuff. And inside the bag of stuff was a video cassette tape. Okay, this was back in the early 90s, so there was a VCR, a video cassette tape, and what it was was an advertisement for car and driver magazine. Okay, it was just a 10-minute or 5-minute VCR tape, which, of course, you were going to get in the mail, stick in your VCR, and watch a commercial. Not really. Well, my grandma didn't have a VCR, didn't even know what the VCR tape was, but she thought, oh, the kids will like it, so it went in the bag, right? So we leave my grandma's house, and we get back to our house, and we're going through the bay, you know, chuck, 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 you know, magazine, and we got the VCR tape, and my sister gave it to me, and I didn't want the VCR tape, so that night I put it in her bedroom. Well, the next morning it was on my bedroom, and the next morning I put it in her bedroom, and the next morning I put it in her car, and this has gone on for about 17 years now. (laughs) We've been passing this VCR tape back and forth, and oh, it has gone far beyond leaving it in each other's rooms, because we're both, you know, married now, and that would be awkward, but it's gone... uh, the, 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 where it started to escalate was she gave it to one of my high school teachers who had me called into the classroom after school as if I were in trouble, and then the teacher handed me the, the video cassette tape. I had it given to the head of security at the University of Minnesota Duluth and had her summoned to the security office, and she was handed the videotape. <laughs> Um, It traveled with her around Mexico because I stuck it in a backpack before she traveled there. I had to tote it around Germany, Denmark, and East Africa when she stuck it in my luggage right before I went. We've given it to each other for countless birthdays and Christmases, but that's getting kind of lame. But at this point, I'm clearly the superior sister because five years ago I had it handed to her during her wedding ceremony. (laughs) And... My husband is on strict orders to keep my sister away from the delivery room in about 12 weeks because, so help me, if she gets in there, I will be handed a video cassette tape rather than an infant. Because she's had it for six years now, and I know she's plotting. So we one-up one another. It's part of our human nature, and it gets pretty ridiculous sometimes. So Jesus knew his audience, and he knew that his audience was made up of people like my sister So he knew that he needed to show, he knew that he needed to show what it meant not just to keep the law, but to go beyond it. And so he gives really specific examples in our passage in Matthew chapter 5. Example one, he shows specifically about going above and beyond when it comes to insult. So you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic or your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him also two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow. I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. This was a big deal. This isn't just about getting clocked on the face. The Jewish audience would have heard this as huge. Jesus was saying, Do not resist an evildoer. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek as well. Face striking was the biggest insult that could happen to a Jewish person at the time. There was actual set financial compensation for a blow to one side of the face or to the other side of the face. Part of that is your, the right side of your face with the left hand, which is considered the unclean hand. All sorts of things wrapped up into this. So Jesus was using an example that would have totally gone zing to his audience. Actual set financial compensation. This is from the Jewish Talmudic law. The compensation. For a stroke with the fist, if someone hits you, um, the penalty is one salah or shekel, about 60 cents. For a slap with an open hand, 200 zuzin, which one zuz is about 15 cents. For a backhanded slap, or for pulling a man's ear or hair, or tearing off his cloak, or a woman's headgear, or spitting at a person if the spittle reaches the flesh, 400 zuzin, about $60. A kick with the knee costs three salas, with the foot, five salas, with each slap, kick, or stroke counting separately. This is pretty detailed. Jesus was not saying, however, he was not saying if someone strikes you on the face, let them beat you to a pulp. Keep that in mind. He was saying, however, let the insult part go. This was a teaching about insult. He wasn't saying, let them beat you up. There was moderation but he said, let the insult go. Don't look for every infraction that you can collect on because of your pride. Take it for the kingdom. Just before this passage, still in Matthew chapter 5, he had said this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. His next example has to do with practical rights. So the first thing had to do with insult. His next example had to do with some practical rights. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat or your shirt, give your cloak or your tunic as well. So, on the one hand, again, there's moderation here. I'm going to take off my earring because it's clicking and driving me nuts, which means it's probably driving you nuts. On the one hand, there's moderation here. Jesus doesn't, um, he doesn't say, if someone takes your cloak, give them your house and your camel and your well. There's moderation. But this is an example that he gives of if someone wants your coat or if someone wants your shirt, give them your coat as well. Um, It's pretty drastic for two reasons anyway. The first one is lawfully someone couldn't keep your outer cloak overnight. And here's why: because most people had two pieces of clothing, their, their inner shirt and their outer cloak, and the outer cloak also served as like your blanket overnight. So even if I gave my cloak to someone as collateral for a loan, they had to give it back to me every night because that was like considered my my house, my my warmth, my blanket. And so to say to someone, if someone wants your your shirt, give them your coat as well, willingly was already just a crazy big idea. But then if you think a little bit further, it was radical because, like I said, most dudes at the time wore two pieces of clothing, an inner tunic or shirt and an outer cloak. So if someone sues you for your shirt and you give them your cloak as well, do the math. Jesus is basically saying, according to the law, you don't have to give your tunic. But I'm telling you, Christian, you can be considered more concerned about keeping the peace than getting every detail, do you? And you, Christian, would rather show this crazy generosity and this sort of irresponsible sense of giving and graciousness than worry about your own nakedness, literally. So the people that were listening to him would have been saying, give them your tunic as well? Are you you kidding me? So these examples are a lot more than just examples that Jesus is pulling out of the air. So the final example, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Now, this would have been the ultimate insult to the Jewish hearers. Why? Because we think, well, go the extra mile. It's kind of a nice little thing that we say, right? Well, this is how the Jewish hearers would have heard it. In the version that Mark read that maybe some of you have in front of you, it says if a soldier asks you to go one mile, go the next mile as well. Go the second mile as well. That's what Jesus was talking about. At the time, remember, the Jewish area was occupied by the Romans. So there were Roman soldiers all over the place. And there was a law on the books that said that a Roman soldier could commandeer any non-Roman citizen that he wanted and say, hey, come over here, and you get to carry my stuff for one mile. You have to carry my things for one mile. That was a law. And any citizen that wasn't a Roman soldier had to comply. There was nothing more insulting to a Jewish hearer at the time than Jesus saying, yep, that's the law. And in fact, don't even just carry it one mile, carry their stuff two miles. This occupying Roman force, the people that the Jews hated more than anybody else. And Jesus was saying, go the extra mile for that person, for that occupying soldier. Carry his armor, his food, his sword an extra mile. Again, Jesus had moderation here. He didn't say march all day long. He didn't say go 10 miles. He said go two. His point was go beyond the requirement of the law to show that you stand out, that you're different. And so these three examples were were radical. They were specific It isn't easy teaching, finding a balance between our innate sense of justice and Jesus' call to stand out. There are definitely times when Christians are called to stand out against injustice, to stand out against the things that are happening that are wrong in the world. Absolutely. Are we to work for justice and peace for the good of people? Absolutely. But Jesus is also saying there's a way to stand out. He said, when your brother wrongs you, confront him in love. That's okay to do. It's okay to stand up for your rights and who you are as a person. Luke 18, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. God is a God of justice. And we can defend one another and defend ourselves where it's appropriate. He's not asking Christians to be passive or unintelligent or pushovers, but he is showing this. There's an alternative kingdom. This totally different, radical, upside-down kingdom is going to show up in our response to the world around us, in our response to conflict and to hate. He says, look different. It's sort of like a... A test plot. You know when you're driving down the country roads in, uh, in Iowa and you, you see the cornfields and then you see a test plot for you know pioneer seeds or something like that? And sometimes it's really noticeable, right? You, you're driving along and there's this kind of lame little cornfield and all of a sudden there's corn that's 37 feet high and it's got a little pioneer sign or whatever. That's a test plot. And Jesus is saying that's how Christians can be. You're in amongst the rest of the corn. You're part of the world. You're getting the same soil, the same sun, the same rain but you're going to stand out and look a little different. The world says retaliate, even justly. Even according to the law, the world says you can retaliate. But Jesus says go the extra mile to maintain peace and demonstrate love. You might remember a few years ago, um, about seven years ago now, there was this tragic school shooting in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It was an Amish school this little one room Amish schoolhouse and a gunman who was like the local milkman. You might not remember that. He was known by many of the Amish families. He was a milkman and he, he went into the school and tragically t- took the girls hostage and ended up um, killing five of them. It was this horrible tragedy. And it was amazing to watch the secular media's response, not to the shooting, because that was pretty typical but the secular media's response to the Amish people's response. And for those of you that don't know, the Amish people are a a group of Christians that uh, live in communities and tend to live very simply and close to the earth and according to scripture. And the secular media was astounded by how the Amish Christian people responded to this shooting and this shooter. And it was interesting to read some of the articles about it again. Here's one from a secular writer. Following the tragic Amish school shooting of ten young schoolgirls in a one-room Amish school in Nickel Mine, Pennsylvania, reporters from throughout the world invaded Lancaster County to cover the story. However, in the hours and days following the shooting, a different and unexpected story has developed. In the midst of their grief over the shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They haven't pointed fingers, they haven't hold, held a press conferences with attorneys at their sides. Instead, they've reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon after the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness towards the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed, and Amish mourners outnumbered the non-Amish at Charles Roberts' funeral, It's ironic that the killer was tormented for nine years by the premature death of his own young daughter. He never forgave God for her death, he told people. Yet after he cold-bloodedly shot ten innocent Amish girls, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed compassion towards his family. In a world at war, and in a society that often points fingers and blames others, this reaction is unheard of. Many reporters and interested followers of the story are asking, how could they forgive such a terrible, unprovoked act of violence against such innocent lives? And then later, this reporter says, the Amish culture closely follows the teachings of Jesus Christ, commonly known as Christianity. (laughs) Jesus Christ taught his followers to forgive one another, to place the needs of others before themselves, and to rest in the knowledge that God is still in control and can bring good out of any situation. Love and compassion towards others is to be a life's theme, the Amish teach. And the secular writer says, wouldn't the world be different if we could all live like this? So the end of chapter 5, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So these last verses of chapter 5 move from how Christians should stand out in our behavior towards conflict and those things and moves towards this call to perfection when it comes to how believers are to respond towards enemies. So again, we have to look at how the Jewish people would have heard this idea of loving enemies. The cultural norm at the time, one of the ways they would have heard it was, that doesn't make any sense at all, Jesus, you're nuts, because the the, the heroes at the time were those that uh, were loyal to their friends and killed their enemies. The Jews were also hearing that they should hate the enemies of God. That's what they were taught. So on the one hand, they would have thought Jesus was completely nuts in saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But on the other hand, when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that would have resonated with the Jews. That would have made sense to the Jews because the the Jews at the time were these religiously zealous people that were striving and trying so hard to be perfect in their relationship with God. Because Jesus hadn't died and risen again and given grace and forgiveness. Their relationship with God was based on trying and striving to be perfect and attaining all of these laws. So the Pharisees and, the, and the, the teachers of the law at the time, these Jewish people listening to Jesus, would have been like, okay, now we're talking. You're saying, be perfect. We can get that. Now just tell us how to be perfect and we're back on board With you, Jesus, because see, they had fallen into this this ditch of the law when it came to religious practice. Religious laws were being laid out in detail, exquisite detail, and telling the Jews how they had to behave in order to be in relationship with God. You want to hear a little bit more from the Talmudic law? This is how detailed it got when it was telling the Jews how they had to be in relationship with God. The law says, the law lays it down that on the Sabbath day, The Sabbath day is to be kept holy, and that on the Sabbath day, no work is to be done, right? We're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. Jewish legalists, they had a passion for definitions, so they asked, well, what is work? All kinds of things were classified then as work. For instance, to carry a burden, to carry anything on the Sabbath, on the holy day, was considered work. But then next, they had to define, well, what's a burden? Like, how much can you carry? How much much or how, how little until it's classified as work? So the scribal law laid it down that a burden is, quote, food equal in weight to a dried fig. So if you're carrying a dried fig on the Sabbath, that's a sin. Enough wine for mixing in one goblet. Milk enough for one swallow. Honey enough to put on a small wound. Oil enough to anoint a small part of the body. Water enough to moisten an eye paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, however big that piece of paper was, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. So if you were carrying any of these minute things, it was considered carrying a burden on the Sabbath sin. Ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet or read enough to make a pen and so on endlessly and endlessly. And so the, the Pharisees, the, the Jewish teachers at the time that were listening to Jesus were like, okay, perfection, we can get that. Just tell us exactly how many points we need to classify as loving our enemies. It was that climate that Jesus was speaking into. But here's the thing. He wasn't introducing a whole new set of laws. He wasn't setting a new, a, a new set of check boxes for how we can love one another. He was calling us to be perfected through just this disproportionate, crazy love and acts of love that didn't make sense. The Greek word that's used here is actually perfect. Some of you might say, well, but we we hear all the time that we can't be perfect and we need God's grace. Absolutely. And some of you, that's what you need to hear this morning, that you are working hard to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and you need a word of grace, that God forgives you when you're not perfect. But Jesus is saying, work towards this. Love your enemies. Act on it. Do it. Don't fall into the ditch of saying, well, the the, the Sermon on the Mount is just a bunch of nice suggestions, but clearly we can't be perfect in our love. Jesus is just using a metaphor. No, he's not. He's saying, be perfect in your love. It's clear that in our lives there are places where we truly actually and practically need to turn the other cheek? Who is it right now that is persecuting you or hurting you or harming you where you can take the high road, as we say, and forgive them, go beyond the law? You may even be justified in retaliating. You may, you may even have a case against them. But Jesus is saying, that's not bad that you might have a legal case against them, but maybe there's a time for grace. Maybe there's a time for going beyond the law. Not so you can check a box. Not so you can say, well, I'm one step closer to being perfected in love. But because Jesus says, live a life where the points don't matter. Have you ever played a game with a little kid? Like the game Sorry, or a game that has different numbers or points? And kids can't keep score, right? And you as an adult, in your mind, you're like, but that's three points, not five points. And you can fight with a three-year-old over points. And you realize after a while how ridiculous it is that you're being competitive with a three year old? And what's the point? The point is that the points don't matter. The point is that you're playing a game with a three year old. And that's what Jesus says. He says it's not about the points, it's about the relationship and living a life of love where love is the point. Let's pray.